0: Amen. I don't know if you ever think about uh, the time of the world wars. Maybe your grandfather or great grandfather uh, or, or father fought uh, for our country. Maybe like me you've read about it only or, or, or seen it uh, on a screen portrayed in a film like a, a Saving Private Ryan or a, or, a, or a Dunkirk. But what strikes me uh, as I watch these, uh, the, these films and read about it is the change that there's been in people. I mean, I often wonder, how did they manage to get people to agree to conscription? This is Father's Day, and men were clearly of different stock back then. The idea that a man's sphere was more than his own self, uh, that that he was somehow to act as a small piece uh, in the country for the greater good, a small kind of pawn on on the larger chessboard, that was more than just his own self. That's crazy to people today. How far have we come in self-serving? Think about it. How far have we come and where are we going? Where are we going? We saw last time in Daniel chapter 10 that there's, there's in, in some sense uh, uh, the, the unseen spiritual realm directly impacting the world that we, we have in front of us. The world that we live in. And the angels are, are, we read about it, are in conflict with their demonic counterparts. Michael um, is uh, speaking in verse 1 and he confirms that he has influenced influenced the, the, the king of Persia, Darius. And strengthening him when he decrees that the temple should be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's what's going on in verse 1. And then he continues into verse 2 and he says this and now I will show you the truth. I will show you the truth. Uh, First of all we notice, uh, there's three main sections, there's four main sections in this tonight. The first one we notice is the Persian and Greek kingdoms. Okay, in verses 1 to 4, that's how I would summarize that. Uh, here we have new prophetic predictions uh, given to Daniel about, about his future that, that are in fact old predictions. Because we have a reiteration of something that we've already seen in the book. The Persian Empire, the, the Medes and the Persians, that's Daniel's today, would not last forever after Darius, three more kings would would arise, we're told and uh, and, uh, then a fourth who will stir up the Greeks, we're told uh, and this would be a man called Xerxes I he would lose to the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC and then of course as we've seen before, there's this one man who comes to the fore, he's called Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire, this is 60 years after Daniel in terms of the time scale here And Alexander, of course, he conquers and he conquers again. And he's one of the greatest military leaders in in history. And and after his death, age 33, in 323 BC, his his great kingdom expansion efforts go to others. None of whom are his blood relatives, just as verse 4 says. His four generals from the four winds of heaven are are called Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus and Ptolemy. And no prizes for remembering those tonight either. even I said the same thing when we looked at chapter 8. By 277 BC, these four kingdoms have sort of stabilised into three big Greek uh, regions, Hellenistic regions of Greek culture uh, and language. One's called Antigonus in Macedonia, uh, northwest uh, in modern day Greece, which you can allow to go in one ear out the other, because we're not dealing with that. The other two we're focusing on tonight, and they are northern and southern kingdoms, uh, two dynasties that that, that compete with each other. One's the house of Ptolemy in the south, in Egypt, which we'll see on the map there, and one is the house of Seleucus in the north, in Syria. With God's people, with Israel stuck neatly in the middle, as you can see. A hundred years or, or so of skirmishes and, and counterattacks between these two are detailed for us in chapter, uh, in chapter 11 from verse 5 to verse 20. That's what we were reading. toing and froing as kings of the north and kings of the south attack each other. The kings of the south are mainly called Ptolemy after their first military leader. And the kings of the north are mainly called Seleucus after their leader and also Antiochus. That's the two names that are mainly used. And we'll pull up a family tree just now. And you probably can't see very much of that, but there's three dynasties there. The two we're focusing on are on the right-hand side. Constant conflict between these two houses, north and south. We're now firmly into wedding season, aren't we? I don't know if you're going to a wedding soon, but we have two notable weddings in Daniel chapter 11. History tells us that around 250 B.C., tell me the second look at the red circle if you can see it. Uh, the second king in the south attempts to make peace with uh, Antiochus II, his rival in the north and he sends his daughter Bernice to marry him as a kind of way of peace terms. but it doesn't end up too well. Uh, his first wife um, whom he plans to divorce to marry this new woman this Bernice uh, she takes umbrage at this. And decides to poison them both, him and his wife-to-be. And then the sending father also dies in the same year. So it didn't work out too well. And that's exactly what verse 6 tells us, by the way. If you read it. History tells us that. Uh, that then... Um, there's a daughter sent from the south in that case, but then there's also a daughter sent from the north as uh, in the way of marriage. And this time, Antiochus III sends his daughter Cleopatra, that's the green circle, to marry the king of the south. This is not the same Cleopatra that's mentioned in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, if you know English literature, but, but actually, that Cleopatra does appear later on down the family tree there. It's the same one. This Maris that I'm talking about happens to go ahead this time, uh, but she decides not to try and protect the interests of her father, but to go with her new husband, and that way the plan to control the kingdom doesn't actually work. She decides to stick with her new man, not with the father who sent her to influence from his perspective. And that's exactly what verse 17 tells us. Daniel 11 has incredible accuracy. It's accurate like nowhere else in this book. This is prophecy. Because Daniel hasn't happened yet, you know. Like telling history. That's what it's like. In fact, some critical liberal scholars actually take this to be so accurate that that they assume it must have been composed after the event and written like it was prophecy. Not much of a vision of the greatness of God in that, I would argue. Not much of an awareness of his uh, sovereign rule over the nations in that. Needless to say, I don't believe it for a second. This is prophecy-like history. Because when it comes to the Lord of time, when it comes to the God who is indeed outside of time, it's just as easy for him to do that. Because he really does own the chessboard, as I say every week in Daniel. All of this to and froing in the northern and southern kingdoms comes to a head in verse 21. And this is where this chapter actually begins to take off in terms of, of what's going on. Verse twenty one, we meet a character that we've met before. He's a contemptible person. His name is Antiochus the fourth. He's called the king of bold face in chapter chapter eight. We've met him before. Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a little horn, according to chapter eight, who stands out from the rest. And his, his other name, uh, yeah, Antiochus the he calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he, he rules the, the Seleucid Empire. That's the, the kings of the north from 175 BC until his death in 164 BC. And he takes this name Epiphanes, uh, which means manifest one, or it's a bit like uh, putting your status as hashtag I have arrived. You know, it's, 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 it tells us something about the man. You know, he's full of his own importance. Manifest one, you know, the great one. I've arrived, Antiochus. And he was not heir to the throne of the north at all. This was supposed to be somebody else who was imprisoned in Rome. And Antiochus takes the throne and decides that it's his even though he's got no right to it. He pays off some important people, and that's what verse 21 says. He obtains the kingdom by flatteries. He's attempted, he then has a few attempts to attack Egypt in the south and as these skirmishes continue. And on his way back from a successful campaign in 169 BC, he stops off in Palestine and doesn't like what he sees. He kills 80,000 men, women and children and plunders the temple. He's a very ruthless man. Two years later, two years later, he comes back and really begins to attack the Jewish religious culture. Because, as we saw in chapter eight, look at verse thirty-one: "Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and he shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate." See what he actually does is he stops the burnt offerings in the Jewish sacrificial system in the temple. He doesn't allow them to do it anymore. We've been here before as well, if you remember. And he also, what he's doing is he's trying to remove the Jewish culture. He's trying to Hellenize them. He's trying to make them Greek. And he removes that faithful Jewish system of worship, which was ordained by God, remember? That was what God gave them in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, how they were to worship. And then this abomination that makes desolate, that history tells us that, the, that he sets up an idol of Zeus, who's a Greek god, in the temple instead. And of course the Jewish people are outraged by this. And there's a revolt. The Jewish people revolt as a result. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, they fight back. Verse 33 to 35 is a reference to fighting and revolt. There's a lot, of, a lot of war language in this chapter, isn't there? And again, this comes with great levels of historical accuracy. I want to tell you that. Even though it's the future for Daniel. Even though it comes from the angel Mike. And it says, "Those who truly fear the Lord encourage others to fight. You see, they would rather die than, than perform abominations in this this false god to this false god in the temple. Many of the wise will stumble," it says. "Many of the wise will suffer; they'll be persecuted, and then they'll be purified, made white, and tried until the time of the of his end, which is when they win the war." And they get the temple to be, uh, the sacrifices begin again, and the temple is rededicated. And then verse thirty-six is actually the twist of this chapter. Okay, that's when things unexpectedly twist. Between verse thirty-five and verse thirty-six, there's something happens here that's quite unexpected. We we have, we have details for history right up until verse thirty-five, and then suddenly we seem to be off the page. It doesn't really seem to indicate any longer of what actually happens with this man, Antiochus, Epiphanes. There's a real departure from the the script of this this man's life. He's there in the black circle. Because these are, are very bold claims from verse 36 onwards. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. It's doubtful that he managed to exalt himself above every god. This man. It's doubtful that he ma- he magnified himself above all. It's doubtful that he he has the ability to to make man rulers of many, as it says. I mean, if he can do as he wills, then, then 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 the Roman Empire is even more powerful later. So so so, how does that work? And then it's 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 his end that actually causes the most kind of problem with that, because it, this is more than likely not him, because verse 44 and 45 do not fit well with the historical account of how this man died. He, Antiochus, our man with um, plenty of self-promotion, he, he meets his end in a bit of a whimper, a, a relatively minor battle in 164 BC with Persia. Not between the sea and the glorious Mount of Jerusalem after a successful assault in Egypt, as verse 45 says. So what's going on here? Who is this then? Well, I think the name gives us more than a clue as we see the next point. You see, this is the Antichrist of which Antiochus Epiphanes is just a foretaste. This is biblical prophecy here, cranking up. Okay, This is the appearance of the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 11. The, the man of lawlessness. Okay, An individual who will make an appearance before the end of the world. And the next obvious question, of course, is, who is he? Who is he? For some in church history, this was the Roman Empire. For Christians, uh, even... During the time of the Reformation, many saw the Antichrist to be the papacy. To be the papacy. The Pope and his Vatican machine. They were so sure that they, they, they in fact wrote it into the Westminster Confession. And indeed the Baptist Confession of 1689 has, has the equivalent of that. I don't think there are many who hold that position today. For for someone in the, in the last few decades, it was somebody like Henry Kissinger. Under President Nixon and Ford in the US or Some people spent a lot of time keeping an eye on him. Is he the Antichrist? For some people, it it must be Barack Obama. It it might even be Donald Trump. This is the sort of thing that happens, isn't it? There are many things that I do not know. And this is one of them. He's still hidden from view. Maybe his time is not upon us. I don't know. But remember that the spirit of the Antichrist occurs time and time again. These traits of this, of this person who's coming at the end occur time and time throughout the ages. That's what John tells us in his, in his letter. In chapter 2 of his first letter, John says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. There are many small a Antichrists. The spirit of the Antichrist rears its ugly head often in the history of the world. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, says John, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There's false religion There's Babylon and all that means and and man's pride and and arrogance and rebellion and and persecution of the faithful. All rolled into this man called Antiochus Epiphanes, right? But he's just a foretaste. And there'll be many more foretastes. Think about the persecution under Emperor Nero that that was coming in AD 70. Uh, Jesus himself talks about this in, in connection with that phrase, abomination of desolation. Which of course he uses to refer to what's happening to the temple under Nero. You can find that out in Luke's account of that, of that statement. But, but that's also a, a statement that refers to what happens just as we described under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Whenever he puts the, the, the Zeus um, god into the temple. It, it, there's two of them. It, it, it happens again. A repeated fulfillment. Think about the arrogance of men like Hitler and Stalin. Think about the persecution of the Chinese church uh, at the Cultural Revolution. Think about Kim Jong-il, that's Kim Jong-un's father uh, in North Korea. And his father Kim Il-sung, who who declared themselves to be gods and are still worshipped today as such. Isn't verse 35 a kind of summary of what happens right down through the ages uh, in persecution of the church? It's purified, it's made white and refined. Still happening today. These are tastes of the Antichrist. The appearance of the one who will, with a helpfully similar name, that, that individual who will come at the end of the world, who Paul says in Second Thessalonians, he says this, For that day will not come, Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now as I said before, I do not believe personally in another literal temple of God in Jerusalem. There are some people who do. Uh, I believe that in the Old Testament things are physical and earthly. But there, there's, a, there's a new covenant. Uh, and I don't personally expect another bricks and mortar temple. I may be wrong. I think we should think spiritually here. But in verse 35 and verse 36 we, we have something of a, of a telescope opening. That's the way this sort of works, isn't it? We go from this, this mini Antichrist... Antiochus, with a helpfully similar name, and who desecrates the temple and shows the worst of arrogance of mankind and persecutes faithful people, God's people. Something we'll see again and again. And then we telescope past all of that, right to the very end, to a view of, of the very end of the world. When the the, the little horn uh, from Daniel is not just a king in this dynasty who puffs his chest out and opposes God and persecutes some people. But but the the main fulfillment, the, the one who opposes God exponentially, the beast of Revelation 13, Revelation and Daniel are very closely connected. It says this: Who was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blasphemies His name and His blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Or from Daniel seven, if you remember, he shall speak words against the most high, and shall wear out the saints of the most high, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given to his hand for a time times and half a time. And we have it on the screen. We can see that there are three main character features of this final Antichrist and all the interim ones in between before him. First one's autonomy, verse 36. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. He's God as far as he's concerned. The ultimate in idolatry. This goes back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? You will be like God, says Satan to Adam and Eve. Autonomy. Secondly, God rejection. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. It's a mark of incredible depravity in Daniel's day to, to, to be disloyal to the religion of your parents. The one beloved by women, at the end of 37 there, well, we're not sure what that means for certain, but could it, could it be uh, that it's some pagan deity? Could it be that, that um, it, it's Jesus even? Who Think of, of the women who went to see him that first morning, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome when he rises from the dead. Or there's also a bit of a longing in Jewish literature for women to be the one who gives birth to the Messiah. So it could be, either, it could be that. It could be Jesus. The one beloved by women. And thirdly, it's it's this idea that that might and strength makes morals. Verse 38. He shall honour the God of fortresses instead of these. This is talking about military power and force. uh, And he he rules by earthly might. What is right is who is strongest, in other words. Let's crush the little God-fearers that we don't like. That's the idea. And doesn't, doesn't this speak of, of the rebellion of man in any age? Do you, do you see that? The, the shame-faced nature of human pride, sort of finger-pointing and blatantly ignoring God. A man sets himself up as his own final authority. He, he rejects God. He, he relies on the strength of his, of his military machine, and, uh, and Christians suffer. I mean, how many times has that cycle repeated itself over the last thousand years? The last hundred years alone. We see strong nations who think they can make their own minds up about morals. Like gay marriage, for example. You, you, you tell the Africans they're not getting any aid until until you agree with us on this moral issue. Because we've decided that this is right. And you'll have to change your... Because we're the powerful ones. And abortion. I mean, they told us last week that our law in Northern Ireland is incompatible with human rights laws. I mean, have we gone cuckoo? Human rights? It's incompatible with civilized, strong, military-powered morals that have already been decided by somebody else. The idolatry of self, you know, autonomy. You know, I, I'm in charge of myself. That that is, that is the centre of, of, of the progression apparently in our world. It's that's the centre of it. That's what people believe in our in our Babylon, where we're exiles. It's I can make up my own mind. I'm my own god. And this will escalate and culminate in a in a final onslaught. When evil seems to triumph, and only the intervention of God will stop it in its tracks. So how are we going to apply this tonight? How are we going to how is this going to impact our lives? What's God saying to us through this passage? Well, first of all, remember that God triumphs. Look at what happens to this false God, look at what happens to the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us this. The Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Revelation 19 tells us what's coming to him. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. I wonder are you in rebellion against God tonight. I wonder, are you against God who wins tonight? Do you hear the way it's puts there? There's no doubt about it. This uh, great battle from verse 40 to the end of the chapter is, is a little bit like uh, what, what many people refer to as the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16. A battle at the end of the world when the kings of the earth gather to do battle with God. That kind of culmination of the, of the sense of, of, of human um, rejection uh, right through the ages... For some people this speaks of, a, of of kings who are loyal to the Antichrist gathering together uh, in physical Israel. Yes, we have the mention of nations around Israel here you see towards the end of the chapter in verse 41. Edom and Moab and, and Egypt. That's possible, a literal battle in Israel confirming uh, moves politically over the last sort of, 50 or 60 years. Some, some take this to be literal and physical. Others see it as more symbolic. For, for me, uh, if um, I had to be pressed on this, this is, this is, a, this is a culmination of, of the, the fist shaking of human uh, pride and self-assurance and false worship. When the Antichrist comes, he's a person, yes, but he, he's also the final representation of all of that. I think it would be unlikely that this battle would be on military terms because our war is not on military terms anymore. That's the way Paul talks in in Ephesians, isn't it? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, let's not fall out either way, but do notice what happens to Antichrist. He, he, he's wiped out. Do not fear. His, his end is... is, is, is we, we may even lose our lives in the struggle. That's what God's word says. But we will win. Because God wins. God wins. And secondly, with the with spirit of the Antichrist very much alive in the world today, remember that there is a war going on, not so much in the future as right now it is that battle that goes on inside each of us? That that daily struggle, you know, is it? Do I go with the spirit or do I go with the flesh? Do I go with Christ or do I go with Antichrist? Uh, I wonder. I wonder what what what's Antichrist in your life? What what attitude you, you've got from from the influence of, of the world around us that, that that's not godly? That that's Babylon even. You know, if you could put it like that, we all have them. We spend much more time out in the world than we do in, in the word. And that's what that's what happens, isn't it? But we, but, but, but we must fight with the faithful. Paul David Tripp says that the human heart is a factory of idols. Don't just um, allow a false god to be in your temple. <laughs> you see the correspondence that... The, the, you see how that, that works? Not, not in a physical battle. Like they fought uh, the Maccabean revolt. To, to get rid of that treacherous thing that's in the temple. But in a daily spiritual battle. Against Antichrist. Against whatever it is. Like Fight that desire to be in control of your own life. Whatever it is. Fight that desire to... to, 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 to to, to listen to the, the sort of me-centred way of looking at the world that, we're, that, we, that we hear all the time. Fight that desire to make up our own morals to suit ourselves. It's what's good for me. No, God's word is our authority. Fight that desire to sin in the way that so easily gets you, whatever that is. show steel and God-given spiritual backbone against it. Like one of those uh, machines in, in the amusements. You know, uh, I don't know if you've seen them back in the day. You, know, you have this sort of hammer, this whacker that, 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 that you have in your hand and, and every time this ugly head pops up you're supposed to hit it. Like that, you know. And another one pops up and you hit it again. And then the same one pops up from before because you're not done with it yet and yet you hit it again. That's the battle. That's the battle of the Christian life right now. But the people who know their God. Shall stand firm. And take action. Verse 32 says. God wins. Be assured of that. I hope you're on the right side. And fight with the faithful. The faithful fight. They don't, it doesn't just all have an automatic. They fight. What's well, anti-Christ. christ and what rears its ugly head. Again and again. Fight what's antichrist. christ Be faithful and battle on. That's what Daniel 11 is all about. Let's bow together, shall we, in a word of prayer.